Welcome to Outliers, a podcast about people in action sports that are doing inspiring shit. I'm Molly Hawkins, your host, and today I have Brad Stewart, former pro snowboarder, founder of Bonfire Snowboarding, VP of apparel and gear at Amher Sports, which is actually the parent company of Bonfire Solomon and Nikita currently. He's a filmer, father, and certainly an outlier. Brad, thank you for joining me today. Molly, it's an honor to uh, join you and your guests today, and uh, that introduction sounds nothing like I see myself, which is a kid who hopped up on a piece of wood when he was 14 years old and slid down his driveway and uh, and let the rest happen from there. But thank you. I'm honored. <laughs> well, that's actually why I'd like to have you here, because I certainly see you as... Um, uh, a North Star, you know, I've been in, I've been snowboarding, what, maybe 18, 19 years now. And you were one person that certainly inspired me to kind of turn this into a career. I'd love to hear your story about how you got into snowboarding, if you'd care to share that with everyone. Well, you know, it's a, it's a really simple story. And, and it's not a story of how I got into snowboarding. Uh, it's a story of how snowboarding got into me. <laughs> and, and, and it's a lot different in that way. I started snowboarding when I was 14 years old. I think it was the winter of 78, maybe 79. It's been a while, so my uh, mind drifts. But uh, it, it was really simple. I was a skateboarder uh, and, and horrible at, at all other sports, basically. But with skateboarding, I had a little bit of magic. I could look at a trick or, or look at a magazine, and I was immediately inspired to do it. Uh, the only hitch was I didn't live anywhere where you could really skateboard all that well. I lived in northern Arizona. Uh, off the edge of the Indian Reservation in uh, Flagstaff, and it was a dusty, windy, dirty little town. Uh, great place to live, but but not not the kind of place that you would think of as a skater's uh, paradise. One day it occurred to me, uh, with all this snow around and everything happening, uh, it seems like I should be able to skateboard on the snow. And I began kind of looking around to see, is there anything really like that, that, that I can skateboard on the snow with? And, and sure enough, I came across uh, the Snurfer and other products like that. And, and I thought, well, uh, that's it. I'll give it a, I'll give it a go. And, and I called. It was a funny little phone call. I, I, I called what was then just a guy named Jake Burton. I found his uh, phone number and uh, and located him, and, and I said, "Hey, I'm a you know 14 years old. I've heard you're making something for going on the snow, like a skateboard. Can I buy one from you?" And uh, he said, "Well, I haven't really started a company yet. Uh, I've kind of got a few things going, but I'll I'll send you something, and you can try it." And before that, we had ridden our skateboards on the snow with our trucks and wheels off, and you know we we'd done all sorts of little experiments on how to slide. But uh, I stood up on that that snowboard at that time, no bindings, the rope, you know, with a bath mat basically on a piece of wood. Uh, and, and I took one run down my driveway, which happened to be the steepest driveway on the entire street, which before before that was a burden. I was that kid with the strong legs and arms from shoveling the driveway uh, that was the horrible driveway. But for snowboarding, it was perfect. I took one run, and, and, I, and I always tell people it was a little bit like that scene in the movie when the sky parts and the sun pops out, uh, and, and you look up and you see your calling. I, I just somehow knew it. And that was the way that snowboarding and the and kind of the day that snowboarding kind of entered me. Amazing. My story's a little less exciting, but that's incredible. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it was really fun. I'm, I'm laughing as I say entered me that uh, certainly I can hear a few of my friends laughing at that comment. But I, sh I should say <laughs> entered my life uh, because I didn't wreck and impale myself with a snowboard or anything. But uh, um, that, that was kind of the day that it entered my life, you know, and from there... 
things evolved really quickly for me. Uh, Jake Burton called me a few uh, weeks afterward and said, what do you think of the, of the snowboard you're riding? I said, um, I think it works pretty well. He said, great, I'm going to be traveling. Can I come to your house and stay there? And I said, well, um, let me check with my parents. I'm a 14-year-old kid. I let my parents uh, know that this guy from the East Coast was going to come to the house and that, that he wanted to see me and go snowboarding with me. And my parents responded like any normal parents would. And they said, there's no way we're going to let some freak from the East Coast meet up with our 14-year-old kid. And they thought it was really unusual and really funny. Uh, I, I called Jake back and said, hey, you know, you can't stay at my house. I'm just a kid and you're, you know, 25 years old or so at that time. <laughs> and my parents are definitely not down with that. Great parents, liberal parents just reluctant to have somebody from 6,000 miles away that we didn't know staying in our house um, he came anyways he stayed out out in front of the house in his truck uh, we went snowboarding a few times and I remember thinking a few things I remember when, when I saw him ride we went riding an afternoon and I, I remember when I saw him ride I thought wow that is amazing he can turn both ways and stop that that's pretty incredible because at that time we were pretty much just going straight and sort of weaving these long, gentle turns. Uh, and then the second thought I had, and, and I don't want this to be taken the wrong way, but the second thought that I had was kind of, hey, we're, we're pretty good at this, me and my friends. I kind of thought, you know, this guy's sort of the reference guy, and we're kind of keeping up with him. And we've only been riding for a couple of weeks, and our skateboarding uh, part of our life is definitely definitely helping us out here. And, and so it kind of made me think, well, uh, I think this is going to go somewhere. I think I can go somewhere with it. And, and I think that I think this could be a pretty fun thing to do. And, and that was really the, the start of kind of figuring out there may be something called pro snowboarding at some point. There may be more competition, uh, more people who like to do this. And maybe I'm in a position to kind of be at the front of that pack. So did you start competing? Were there any competitions at that point or did you guys kind of help build that community and culture? Well, it's funny. I, I always tell people there, there was a very, very regulated competitive circuit. And what it was, was every time you went riding with anybody, they tried to do better than you because snowboarding was so new. Everybody was challenging themselves <laughs> and challenging each other. And, and so every time you went riding, it, it was kind of a little bit competitive because uh, somebody would do something and they a, a turn or a jump or something. And they would say, well, check this out, dude. I'm going to take my rope off and I'm going to do that jump, you know, which it, which it that time was just, are you kidding me? That's insane. That's like diving into a shark pit with meat smeared on your body. You're going to die, you know? And, and you know, sure enough, it quickly uh, evolved to where a lot of competitions did come around, and, and they came around pretty early. We certainly did a lot of phone calling, and I did a lot of phone calling as a, as a 14 and 15-year-old kid to resort saying, can me and my friends come to your resort set up a little jump, set up a couple of gates to turn around, build a couple of banks and berms with hay bales that we'll pile snow against, and run a little race. And can we use your NASTAR uh, timing device? We won't cause any trouble. We won't be around. You know, we kind of saw at that time that that competitive piece, if people couldn't relate to the guys who were skateboarding or surfing on snow, which is kind of how they saw us, at least they could relate to the fact that we went through 13 gates in 33 seconds. Right. So, and, oh, sorry, oh, go ahead. Go, go ahead. Yeah. Well, so when you were approaching those resorts, how many of them actually were responding at that point? Uh, none. 
um, what we found was a really interesting phenomenon that's that's kind of been something that's baked into the history of snowboarding a little bit. What we found is that the resorts and the people who had nothing to lose embraced us. They loved it. So the little mountains in Arizona, where I grew up in, in northern Arizona, uh, Greer and, and places like that, they loved it. They said, you guys are going to come down. There's going to be eight or nine or 10 or 20 of you, and you're going to stay in our hotel and eat in our restaurant and snowboard on our mountain. Great. Come on down. Now we'll be happy to set up. Just one question. What the hell is a snowboard? <laughs> and that made it really, really fun to go to these places and pioneer things, you know. So the little resorts that had nothing to lose, they loved us. And that's a lot of what built snowboarding. And the big resorts, they had no use for us. There right. wasn't enough snowboarding at that time or enough riders at that time to really have any sort of economic force. We couldn't come to the table like we could in the mid 80s and early 90s and say, you can turn us back. Just be aware you're turning 6.5 million snowboarders back when you shut me down. Uh, at that time, if you shut one of us down, you, you were shutting down a, a guy and two of his buddies. And so the early uh, days were filled with small resorts and small competitions. Boreal Ridge was kind of the height, the first Sims World Championship that they held in 82. That was the that was the big thing that all of us were shooting for. And it was a little bit like a novel. All of us were trying to build our little uh, rocket ship and launch it to the moon uh, at Boreal. You know, we were trying to be that that rider that first uh, came to that mountain and won that first world championships and did that great first thing. And that gave a lot of us something to aim for. And I was certainly one of those kids that, that aimed for that. Well, I have butterflies right now, just imagining being in that position and being part of something that's really building and growing. And I, I, I'd, I'd guess the community was really tight and small and close and everybody knew each other. I, I remember when I first started getting into snowboarding, I mean, all of the the kids who snowboarded, we were homies and we were tight and there were only a few of us. And I, I'd imagine it would be very similar, but even more exciting because you're at the forefront. You know, it was really it was really fun. And it, and it was a small, tight group of people. You, you know, the entire competitive uh, culture of snowboarding probably could have collectively smoked one joint. I mean, it, it really wasn't a whole lot of people <laughs> and, uh, or, or shared one beer. Amazing. And uh it wasn't a lot of people, but you know what's funny? There aren't any of us or many of us left in the business today. There, there's just, uh, I think, myself and Jake and, and maybe one or two other people on the peripheral of the business from those days. And what I love about it is, uh, you know, here, here we are many, many years later, uh, and I can still see that little sparkle in everybody's eyes. And I can still, you know, tap back to my photos and look at my photos of, uh, of being at Boreal and being at that contest and looking at the characters and everything. Uh, I, I can still go back to that time pretty quickly and, and still see the inspiration and the love of snowboarding in their face. And that's a lot of what keeps me going, you know, when we're in times like we are right now where snowboarding participation is down, fewer people are riding and snowboarding is becoming a little more of a sport you watch than a sport you do. Mm. Uh, those are the things that give me faith that, you know, people will come back to doing the sports in a major way. And it's going to take a push and it's going to take a new chapter in snowboarding opening up. Uh, and that chapter will be written in a different way than the first chapter was be, was written, you know, in my in my time, we, we wrote the chapter as a, 
as a rebellious, loose, fast, and, and furious uh, uh, group of kids traveling the country, listening to punk rock music and snowboarding in places we were forbidden to ride in. Mm. And, and our whole desire was, you know, to, to break the status quo and up, upset the country club environment of the ski uh, world. And, and we did it. Uh, but the second chapter of snowboarding will, will probably be different. But I think there's a, a lot of pioneers and a lot of people from the early phase who will happily and joyfully transition to that that new era. Again, you guys are listening to Outliers. I'm Molly Hawkins. And the ominous voice on the other end is Brad Stewart, snowboard pioneer and great human. Um, Brad, so we we're talking about your teens, your late teens. You're getting into snowboarding. Um, how did your career evolve as you climbed into your 20s? You know, I, I know a little bit about where you went from there, but I'd love for you to share kind of, you know, what happened, what dropped, how did you end up in film school back in snowboarding and back into the film world? Well, it, it was really funny. You know, I, I uh, as I said, I had started snowboarding at a really young age and, and I had gotten pretty good, good enough to win uh, any contest that was local there in my region. Uh, good enough to have a respective showing at any of the, the uh, national events. Good, good enough to be sponsored by uh, Burton and then later good enough to be sponsored by Sims and, and on their World Cup team. What I wasn't good enough to do was beat a kid called Sean Palmer. And, and, and Sean Palmer is actually the guy that I owe my business career to. Because before there was a snowboarding business, there were two guys, Jake Burton and Tom Sims, who started different snowboard companies. And they were very, very different individuals. Tom Sims was a, a, a loose, cultured guy uh, who spent a lot of time in Santa Barbara eating mushrooms, living in a living in a treehouse off the beach with his buddy Chuck Barfoot. Uh, Jake Burton was an ex-stockbroker who grew up in a family where he'd lost his brother in the Vietnam War, and it was a much more serious and different dynamic in in his life. And and, and I was kind of that kid in the middle of those two archetypes, if you will. I, I was kind of that first kid that started on Burton and switched over to Sims, and mm -hmm. I switched over to Sims because. Snowboarding to me was about being free uh, at the end of the day. It was about that freedom of riding in the mountains, just like you'd find a street and go skateboard a street and you would know there aren't any judges. Nobody's going to blow a whistle. I can't break any rules. I'm free to create. And that was what snowboarding was for me at that time. So I struggled a bit with competition. Now, I say that Sean Palmer uh, is the person responsible for my business career. Uh, he is because of a very simple event. There was a national championships in Crested Butte, Colorado. All of the Sims team had shown up. Tom had circled us all around, and he said, okay, guys, we have a brand new logo. Here's the new T-shirts with the Sims team logo on it. All of you guys have to wear them. Hey, everybody, I'd like you all to be in red pants for the photo shoot because we need the colors to pop. Mm. And, and, and it was kind of the first time that an art-directed vision of snowboarding was, was showing. It was something other than just a ragtag bunch of kids on the hill. And we all thought, this is awesome. This is really cool. We're getting legitimate. And they had us hike up the side of the half pipe at Crested Butte. They, they shaped a couple of kickers. We, we shaped a lot of kickers. You know, at all the first contests, the riders built, built all, of the, all of the pipes and obstacles on their own. And I was walking up the side of the pipe with a good friend of mine, a, a guy named uh, Brian. And Brian and I was uh, walking up the side of the pipe. Sean Palmer was a brand new kid on our team. He was, I think, around 11 or 12 years old at that time. And he had a busted wrist. 
And everybody said, hey, man, this kid's red hot. He's so good. It's crazy. His nickname is Mini Shred, blah, 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 blah. And at that time, I was working on trying to get my method air down. I just thought, man, if I can pull a good four or five foot method above the deck, I'm solid. I'm in top five, and I feel good. I was walking up the pipe with Brian. We watched Sean Palmer drop in with a broken wrist and, and a big cast on his arm and everything. And we thought, that kid's, you know, he's not going to do anything. Sean proceeded to boost about a 12-foot method air over our head, which was one and a half times my most optimistic method. <laughs> and landed it perfectly, busted wrist and all, straight to the other side of the pipe, spun a 540. And it was another moment similar to that earlier moment that I described where the sky opens up and the future is immediately shown to me. Uh, this was very different. The sky opened up, the future was immediately shown to me, and I thought, I got to get the hell out of the pro snowboard game because that kid is going to kill everybody for the next generation. And I have no chance of winning anything at all as long as a guy like Sean Palmer at 11, 12 years old with a busted wrist, can ride three times better than I can at my healthiest, best level. And, and so I remember thinking that day, well, that that's it. I got to jump into the business. I got to find something to do. So I had been going to film school uh, and, and living in Santa Barbara. I went to the Brooks Institute in Santa Barbara and then uh, uh, completed my studies uh, back at Northern Arizona University. Once I got my degree, I came into the Sims office and said, guys, snowboarding and everything we've done here has been beautiful. I've loved traveling with all of you guys, getting in trouble and everything else. It's time for me to enter the real world. I'm going to go make movies. And, oh. and that tells you a little bit of how warped maybe my perception was, is that somehow the film industry represented stability to me over snowboarding. And... Uh, and uh, Tom Sims was there and he said, well, hey, I have an idea for you. We, we've just sold our company division streetwear and they have a film division. Why don't you go to work for them and stay here, stay on the team and keep competing? And, and I just thought, OK, I'll do that. And so I stayed on. I went to work at Sims for about a week or so, doing a little bit of film production. We were working on a movie called Snow Days at that time, and Snow Shredders was another, another film we were working on and everything. And these were kind of the first early snowboard movies, and they were, they were really horrible, but they're really sweet movies to watch now because they're just filled with the history of, of, of the creation of, of freestyle snowboarding. And uh, after about two weeks, I came to Tom and I said, you know, this company's kind of a mess and I'm not really a business guy. I went to art school, um, but, but I do have a little bit of a, a business mind and I have some ideas on how I would change some things at Sims. And he kind of said to me, you know, do, do what you think you need to do, but don't, don't screw anything up. Uh, long story short, a couple of years later, I'm pretty much running Sims at 23 years old uh, with a great group of guys there. Killer people like Shaw Keiki and other other names that people won't know at all that were really uh, significant pioneers in developing the shapes and the and, and the way that a snowboard functioned. Uh, but I'm kind of in over my head and loving it. And Sims is growing like crazy. And we're cooking up all sorts of schemes like, hey, the SIA guys won't let us show at their show. They won't allow snowboards at their show. I have an idea. Why don't we rent a booth from another manufacturer? Let's sublet a booth without telling them we're Sim snowboards. Let's all dress in black, arrive at the last minute, and pop up our snowboards in the booth. And then the SIA won't kick us out because it'll make too big of a scene. Amazing. 
So I, I did a lot of things like that. They were just kind of guerrilla things that, you know, piss people off and, and cause a little bit of trouble. But, you know, relative to the music I was listening to and the people I was hanging out with and everything, it all seemed pretty mundane to me and, and, and seemed pretty mellow. But it caused a disruption and it caused kind of the birth of the snowboarding industry, that battle between Sims and Burton. So it's clear to me that everything that I know and love about snowboarding has in some way been shaped by what you've done for for the industry. <laughs> I feel like you've paved the way and I think Bonfire was certainly a brand that I, I looked to in, when I was coming up. Um, is that kind of where you started to think about Bonfire and how did that come out of the Sims era? Well, uh, th thank you for that comment. I mean, I, I'm just so thankful to the people I've been able to snowboard with that I, I just feel really lucky and, and uh, to be considered somebody that paved the way uh, for you because you're somebody who I, I admire as a groundbreaking uh, woman in snowboarding who's accomplished a lot in a very uh, young age. Uh, that That's just really a great uh, and interesting thing for me to hear. Um, I think that you know, uh, Bonfire was kind of born in, in a strange way. My, when we started, you know, if you kind of wind the clock back, so I, I'm in Arizona with my buddies and we're getting free boards from Jake as he's figuring out how to start his company. And he has us testing a variety of things, some of which are total crap and completely dangerous, other things which are kind of compelling and fun. But the one thing that's consistent is we keep breaking boards. Every time he sends us something, we break them hmm. right right between the feet in front of what was then where your fins would mount in. And there were two holes, you know, if you imagine right in front of your back foot, there was a hole right at the top of your big toe and a hole right at the right at the back of the of kind of the top side of your of your uh, uh, foot of your your uh, ankle there. And those holes somehow would always crack and somehow would always break. So we kind of had a deal with Jake where he said, listen, whenever you break something, take a photo, send it to me, let me see what's going on so I can figure out what I need to do differently. Well, after a while, he started to get a little, a little bit upset with us because we were just breaking these things like, you know, candy sticks. And so he says, hey, stop sending these things back. It's a small fortune to send these boards back to me. Uh, shoot, shoot a photo and, and send me the photo. So we have all these boards around and we start thinking, well, all right, what, what should we do with these boards? So at those days, the mountain that I grew up with was called the San Francisco Peaks, and the San Francisco Peaks were considered in Arizona a holy area to the local tribe there. Uh, to all of the people who skied and snowboard there, the Indian tribes were just kind of a, a problem and people who got in the way, you know. And we kind of thought, well, we're sort of outsiders like the Indians here. They, they would come up and do various ceremonies around the mountain, and they would sort of protest the fact that there was a ski area there because they didn't like having people sliding uh, over the top of their uh, ancestral uh, uh, burial uh, grounds and all these other things that were there. And we, we really related to that. But we kind of thought, well, maybe what we can do is we can just start burning our snowboards and we'll do sacrifices for powder. Oh. We'll just take all of our boards and throw them in a huge pile and, and just burn them. So we started doing that. We would throw them in a pile, put a little put a little uh, gas on the whole thing and light it, light our old skate decks, light, light everything we could. And we'd just burn it either in our backyard of this apartment we had, we had eventually moved into when we were, when we were 17 or, or, or there actually uh, up on the mountain and stuff. 
And that's kind of where the idea of all these friends around a fire, all these friends around one thing that could, that, that could grow into this really burning and beautiful thing. That's kind of where that first concept and that first vision for bonfire kind of came together in my head. I didn't really get a chance to articulate it until later in life when I was at Sims and I thought, man, I got to... I got to do something different. I'd launched the Sims board brand uh, and, and helped uh, to bring it to the next level. Um, I had, and I don't want to say that I was the only one. There were certainly a lot of other, lot of other people that were involved uh, with, with Tom and the things that he had done. So I, I, I would never want to take credit as being the only guy there, but I think I, I played a big role. And uh, then I had launched Moro Snowboards and, and created that with one of our team writers. And I thought, well, I got to do something. I got to do something kind of different. I think I'll get into the clothing game. I don't like the way that our clothes look. I don't want to look like a skier when I'm snowboarding. And um, so I just kind of thought, well, what, what could be a good name for that? I had suggested to somebody a couple of years before the start of Bonfire, when I was in the vision offices, one of the guys on the team, I think it was Marty uh, Jimenez, uh, came in and said to me, uh, you got any ideas for a name for a skateboard wheel? And I said, yeah, call it the Bonfire. And he said, that's a horrible idea. Hmm. And, and, and turned around and left. And uh, and I just kind of hung on to that name. I wrote it on a little napkin at lunch, Bonfire. And I thought, man, Bonfire Snowboarding would be a cool name for a company. It'd be cool because it honors all my buddies in Arizona and all the stuff we used to do. And and, and snowboarding at that time to me was very much like a like, like a fire. Every time the, the winter rolled around, it got more robust and more heat and more attention and bigger and bolder and better. And so that kind of informed all of those early days of Bonfire. And my thinking was really simple at that time. I just wanted to do something that had a streetwear aesthetic with all of the performance of a brand that was an expedition level brand. You know, where I lived in Flagstaff was very cold, very stormy. We rode in all conditions every day, all day. Uh, so I knew it had to work. And that was kind of the idea behind Bonfire. Streetwear look, expedition performance and try to keep the whole brand uh, all about being close to your friends and riding with your friends. That's funny. I remember seeing some early stuff. I mean, when when was bon when did you found Bonfire? So. Well, I kind of kicked it off in 89 and okay. re really started getting after it in 1992, but 89 yeah. is kind of the origin point. Did uh did, was a uh, a slow process getting people to accept. I mean, I'm sure it definitely had it was a departure from what was available at that time? Well, we had kind of three hurdles. Um, number one, we were far more expensive than anything else on the market. And, and that was my insistence on trying to make the highest quality product we could. And, and also, I should add, not knowing a damn thing about mm -hmm. clothing mm -hmm. and, and, and not really knowing how to do all of those value engineering things that are an everyday part of clothing. We kind of looked at it and said, if it needs to be strong here, build it strong here and spare no expense on fabric or materials or whatever. And so uh, first thing was we, we were much more expensive than everyone. Second thing was we had to sell people on the basic idea that snowboarders required special clothing. Because at that time, everybody said, well, if you're a snowboarder, you need those pants with the big square knee pads on them and a jacket. That's, that's snowboard apparel at that time. And there were brands like uh, Quimbola Man and Wave Rave was around and kind of kind of a, a hot brand at that time, which was you know funny because Wave Rave was one of the first incarnations of the guy who's now the founder of Lululemon. 
And uh, so there were all these things out, and I just kind of looked at them and thought, that that looks ridiculous. The last thing I want to do when I'm snowboarding is sit around on my knees on some knee pads uh, <laughs> on the side of the slope. That, that just... Uh, culturally and and everything it just said to me I, I i don't like that i don't think snowboarding is a sport that needs to be uh, on its knees on the side of the slope i think snowboarding should be the most attractive best looking highest performing highest quality absolutely blow your mind what the hell is that coming down this mountain and into the air uh, to skiing uh, that you could create and that that was what i wanted to try to do and so we had to convince people people want to wear snowboard gear then we had to convince them, even though Bonfire doesn't look like a waterproof, breathable, seam-taped garment that's highly technical with everything you would get in a North Face or Patagonia jacket and more, uh, that, that it is. And, and we've made it that way, and we're actually learning very quickly how to make great clothing. And so we had these three big hurdles. And then you throw in that, you know, if it snowed, everybody said in the office, see you later, I'm out of here. Uh, so we didn't work like a, a Columbia or, you know, one of these other, uh, a Nike or, a, you know, a real apparel company. Nobody at Nike says, hey, man, it's a sunny day on the track. Let's split and go run for eight hours. Uh, they, they don't do that. And uh, uh, but at Bonfire, we did that for, for the first five, five years of the company. And we even had a rule that that uh, Monday was fun day and we didn't work on Mondays, you know, so we only worked four days a week starting the company for the first five years or so. So uh, we just kind of broke all the rules. We got super lucky. Uh, timing was perfect on starting the company. We made some great products. I hired a lot of people that are smarter, better looking, more articulate and more interesting than I am uh, and, and worked the company really, really hard. And I think we just kind of beat people by always being there if you if you uh called us and at midnight and said hey man my jackets broke down somebody was there to pick up the phone and say all right tell me about it here's how you can fix it or here's how we can fix it or you know so on and so on and so on and uh i just think we worked really hard uh, to, to make the company happen man you sounded like it sounded like a fun place to work had i been of legal age to work when you were kicking that off i would have loved to work for you <laughs> well it, you know it it, it it's funny you say that because a big, big part of our story, and honestly, I don't talk about it too often because it's a really uh, a personal and a really tough thing for me to talk about even, you know, 20 or something years later. But, you know, a, a big part of our company is that uh, one of the co-founders, Monica Stewart, uh, you know, she was my aunt and, and a person really intimately involved in the early days of clothing. She also didn't know anything really about snowboarding or snowboarding apparel. But she had a real heart for design, and she really was dedicated to try to do something. Uh, she was uh, diagnosed with breast cancer right around the time we sold Bonfire to Solomon. And so, you know, imagine the, the story in the office there. We're a group of young people in love with the sport, in love with each other, in love with having fun, in love with this brand new lifestyle that's allowing us to go see the world and the world's largest ski company comes to us and says, we're going to pay you millions of dollars to buy this whole thing from you. All your hard work is going to pay off. All of your, your dreams are going to come true, blah, 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 blah. And you get hit with only one caveat. Your partner's going to die before that ends. 
And and that was a big part of the culture that that you know shaped our company and shaped that time and shaped my viewpoint on it. And even today, you know, when people say to me, "Man, the business is tough and it's really you know bad bad times in snowboarding," I always say to them, "Man, you this isn't bad times. I've I've seen the worst times, and I, I know what they look like, and they don't look like this." And and that's a big part of the DNA of how I think about our company and what keeps us in here and keeps us motivated you know 25 years later is is just that time that you were just referring to and speaking of that time tons of good times in there tons of beautiful moments in there um but also a, a tinge of real deep and and personal tragedy uh that that sort of steeled us in that way that you you know you you see the the old movie shot of the sword that drops into the fire and gets tougher. That, that's, that's what happened to our company, and that's what happened to all of us. We sat there and worked and sold a company while one of our coworkers who had a dream of snowboarding Mount Rainier someday passed away right in front of our eyes. And to honor her, you know, the Boarding for Breast Cancer organization was started, and it's lived its own, its own life and taken her life up. Uh, out you know to many other people but it's a real part of the story that i think we don't talk about that often but uh you're a friend and you know our company and you you know our our mm -hmm. roots and and you know mount rainier is right down the road from where you are so oh, it's yeah. a it's a relevant piece of the tale to me today and you know i've i've followed that story and i'm not sure where i first heard it but it's i mean you've been through a lot you've and like i said you've shaped snowboarding your story is damn inspiring and I think about back when I was maybe 15, dreading the thought or even just not even knowing what my future would unfold, I could have used a 30-minute conversation with someone like yourself to just open the doorway of possibilities. You know, I could sit here and probably pick your brain for hours and hours, and uh, I don't want to do that to you or to our producer, Josh, here. Um, but I would love to have you back on sometime to share. I mean, I, we could hit a number of topics. I really want to talk to you about participation Talk to you about where snowboard's been, where it's going. We already kind of did talk about where it's been, but um, I know you would have a lot on any of those topics. Molly, it's uh, it's been a pleasure and an honor. Thank you. Thank you guys for tuning in. This is Outliers. Molly Hawkins, I'll be back here again soon. Please check out www.outliersproject.com, and uh, we'll have a blog post up and some links and resources from Brad. And uh, thanks again, guys. Have a great week. Bye.